Welcome to VSB After the Bell. I'm your host, Gianna Chow. With deep gratitude and respect, we are honored to be learning and unlearning on the ancestral and unceded lands of the Hamathquiam, Skohomish Ohomeom, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. The Vancouver School Board is among the most diverse school systems in Canada with an annual enrollment of approximately 50,000 students from kindergarten to grade 12 and adult education students. February presents an opportunity to honor many of the diverse cultures and backgrounds of the staff and students throughout the district. From Black History Month to World Hijab Day, Lunar New Year, the Women's Memorial March, and World Day of Social Justice, this month offers a chance for us to learn, recognize, and uplift as we work to create safe, caring, welcoming, and inclusive places for students and families. Equity and inclusion are core pillars of VSB's framework. In fact, our education plan, which is similar to a strategic plan, specifically focuses on increasing equity by eliminating racism in all its forms. However, we know real change cannot just be written in a plan and forgotten. It takes real work, meaningful conversations, and unwavering commitment. To shine light on exactly how VSB does has, and will continue to eliminate racism and discrimination, we are pleased to introduce a key member of the equity and anti-oppression team. Welcome Hugh Pham Fraser, District Principal of Equity, Anti-Racism and Non-Discrimination, otherwise known as EARNED. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. So Hugh, for our listeners, um, can you please introduce yourself, your role, and what your team does? Okay. So my name is Hugh, and I'm the district principal um, for our department called Equity and Anti-Oppression. And I work with an amazing team of district resource teachers and teacher consultants, um, mainly Nassim, Nigel, Lee, and Destin, um, and we support many different schools and district departments to forward this uh, work of equity and anti-oppression. So why don't we start off with a little bit of a history lesson. What has VSB done in the past to help support equity, anti-racism, and non-discrimination across a district? That's a great question. Well, before I came to this role, my predecessors had set the foundation that we now work with. So they've done really the hard work of understanding what students um, across the district have been experiencing for many years. And, and then they set um, the foundations of the equity statement within the ed education plan, and then also coming up with the three strategic goals of that equity statement. And that, those three goals is actually what gives us um, the work that we are doing today. Can you walk us through that, the equity statement? Because I mean, for maybe a lay person, it's just words on a paper, right? So what's the value of an equity statement and how does that influence our work here at the district? That's a great question. So actually, um, many districts have what we call um, an education plan or a strategic plan. But VSB is the first place that I know that actually has an equity statement that states um, that we are intentionally and strategically working towards equity and non-discrimination in all areas 
of um, education and spaces for students and their families. And so out of that statement comes three goals. Um, one about um, reconciliation and listening and respecting and honoring the stories of um, Indigenous communities. And then the second one is ensuring that um, what we do in with students in our care um, is to provide a place for safe and inclusive and culturally responsive learning. Mm -hmm. And then the third one, which I think is really amazing is um, collectively dismantle systemic racism and discrimination in all its forms. And that statement really sets um, the road for us. Well, that's a really big statement. Yeah. It's a very brave statement, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So speaking of equity, I often hear the phrase equity does not equal equality. How does that resonate with you and what does that mean? I just had a conversation with uh, a group of students the other day, actually, around that word. And interestingly enough, um, an example became very clear. There was a student after lunch who hurt their wrist. And um, for that student, their friend took them to the office and gave them an ice pack to care for them and then walked them back to the classroom that's equity in action because only one student needed the ice pack and one student needed that extra friend to help. I, I wouldn't give you the ice pack because you don't have a sore wrist. You right. didn't hurt your wrist, right? So thinking about the groups who have been marginalized or pushed to the side in history and, and even today, um, what do they need? What do they need to bring them back into the center? What do they need to um, lift them up so that they will be seen as equals um, in dignity and respect with yeah. the rest? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really great example. And to me, I think if I were to sum it up, it's about perspective. If you can put yourself in, in their shoes, if you can see their perspective, what do they need? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So what are we actively doing right now to address this? So just as I said, those three goals, um, they're kind of like our team's North Star. And um, it guides and helps us to focus all our resources and energies to ensure that what we do make the most impact. Um, so right now, oh my goodness, there's so much. I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> but from... Uh, professional development. We also visit schools and set up book clubs. We actually set up a new SharePoint site um, where we can keep our videos and our archives of our newsletters and, and resources that um, all VSB staff can access. We also um, are coming up with lots of district initiatives such as the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Youth Conference coming up, the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion interview videos for elementary students. Um, Pride Month is coming up, and then the Pride Parade in the summer that we are preparing for. So there's such a long list. 
So it sounds like um, resources for teachers, you know, so both in-person and virtual resources. Um, so then they can use those and apply it when they're teaching kids, but then also working directly with students. So you mentioned the DEI conference, the Diversity, Equity um, and Inclusion Conference, working directly with them to promote student voice so they can be involved in a district initiative um, where they are reaching out to the 50,000 students in the district. Yeah, yeah. And can I just add, actually, um, one more thing that we are approaching this work with? And the work of racism and discrimination is about dehumanization. Mm. The work that our team does is to bring the humanity back. So we bring a real um, restorative lens and a belonging lens to the work that we do. And it's about building relationships with each and every person that we meet. Maybe um, talk a bit more about that. So racism and discrimination is about dehumanizing it. How are you using restorative justice to humanize this? And in your experience as an educator, do you think this approach works more effectively than the kind of the olden ways, you know, where um, you might hear some parents feel like we're not being harsh enough in terms of punishment. So how will they learn their lesson if we don't actually, uh, you know, give them enough of a consequence? Mm. Well, when you think about punishment, punishment really is attached to um, you did something bad. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you're bad, right? When I grew up, that's how I really felt when I was quote unquote punished, right? And that's the whole point of dehumanizing Mm -hmm. is when you take on that shame and you take on that mistake and and you can't really get past that. Mm -hmm. And and so we want, we're an education system. Mm -hmm. We're here to learn and grow and we will make severe mistakes. Yes, absolutely. And we are we will be responsible and held accountable mm-hmm. for it. Um, the restorative approach doesn't mean you're not being held accountable. You very much are. As a matter of fact, I've been witness to um, the effects of what happens when a person gets to hear the impact that their language mm-hmm. makes on another human, right? And and that is quite a big impact than, let's say, um, being punished, but not actually understanding the impact you had, right? So replacing that um, shame with that ability to understand, and that's how we can humanize the process. Mm, Thank you for explaining that. Uh, So working to eliminate racism is a massive undertaking. It's not just Vancouver experiencing this, it's worldwide, it's international, wherever you go, unfortunately. So you have a team of five people and we have a district of 50,000 students. How is your team managing uh, eliminating racism, which is this huge topic, a five with 50,000 students. Yeah. Well, when you put it that way, <laughs> it is very daunting. But honestly, when we think about the work of equity and anti-oppression, that rests with every person in the district. It's not just the five people on our team. So really, that responsibility rests on, I I think, each employee, mm. right? We take a bit of what we can do and, and we go forth um, 
in our best way, mm -hmm. in a good way. Um, but our team actually works alongside everybody. So really, we help out by going to schools, going into classrooms, going into the areas and spaces that um, people ask us to come into. And we walk alongside to provide consultation, to provide resources, to collaborate. And then hopefully we're building that understanding together. Mm -hmm. And when we leave that site, they are able to continue the work. Right. So you're you're teaching the teachers, you're helping support the teachers. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways. Yeah. Can you share a, a positive story or an, an example um, of how your team came in and uh, supported the initiatives of the EARN team? Okay, sure. Well, one thing that we're really proud of, and it's been going on, I think this year will be our fifth year um, that I'd like to talk about is the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Youth Conference. Mm -hmm. And um, this year, we have already begun because it's happening in April. So um, our team works, I think we started like a couple months ago even with the planning. But really, this conference is about student voice and uplifting students and, and their abilities to plan and implement mm -hmm. and create together. And that's really what uh, we have done. And Nassim, um, the teacher that's taking the lead to that, she really works to facilitate as the guide on the side and the student's voice really comes through. And we're very, very proud of that because I think part of this whole work is to center student voice. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, our, there's a group of students who, who volunteer their time and they meet online every week at lunchtime and they talk about how the day is going to go. They plan for the keynote speakers. They plan for the workshops. They plan for the theme of the year. And um, as adults, we're there to make sure that um, we can take away any barriers mm -hmm. so that they can they can go forth with their, their work. And they plan with students, with each other, for students. So if a, if a student is interested in participating in the DEI conference, where can they find more information or how can they uh, be part of this uh, planning committee? If a student is interested in this area of work at their schools, they might want to join their diversity club or they might want to join their rainbow club or whatever social justice initiative club that they have at their school. And that's the first step to take because from there, they would learn about what this team is doing and this mm -hmm. department's doing because updates are already, um, are always being communicated to the sponsor teacher. Um, and then from there, they could they could forward their name to their sponsor teacher at their school, and then that's how we get to hear about them. And so um, the first step, if if they even want to join the Rainbow Club, do they talk to their administrator, their principal, their vice principal mm -hmm. to get that, or is it their classroom teacher? Oh, that's a great question. I think you can talk to any one of the above um, adults that you mentioned, but usually in each school, there is a sponsor teacher involved. And so that's probably um, public knowledge through announcements or newsletters, that, and then they can go talk to that sponsor teacher. Looking ahead to what challenges remain, 
How is the district planning to address the rest of racism issues we have today? There's quite a, a significant amount. Yeah, I I agree with you when you said earlier that when you think about racism and how it is everywhere, um, it does feel very daunting. But to do this work, it really requires um, an internal um, reflection. And I would encourage that everyone on like as a habit to decolonize our minds and our hearts really begin a practice of self-reflection, critical self-reflection. And I would, um, I know I ask myself this um, often, almost on a daily basis even, what do I say and I, what do I do that allows every student in my care to see themselves in this journey to becoming an anti-racist or anti-discriminatory human being? So the way I speak, the way I behave, how I build relationships with each child and each student makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And then that helps me to make decisions. The lessons I teach, what's in my classroom, how I set it up, and then how is the school set up? How do we move through the hallways? And then from the district level, what systemic things are in place? that we need to dismantle so that we can clear the way for students and their families to take on that journey with us. It's important we continue to have open and honest conversations such as this if we wish to make real change in eliminating racism and discrimination in all its forms. It's clear this is a priority for our district, and it's a journey we're committed to for the long haul. Hugh, thank you for sharing your insights and the impactful work being done. To our listeners, let's all work together to create space for equity and inclusion. Real change is a collective responsibility, and it is up to each and every one of us to do better, be better, and inspire better. We have a reoccurring segment on the show called Matter of the Month, where we talk about hot topics in the district. For this February, we're discussing a topic that has been ringing in the minds of many students and their families, cell phones in schools. To answer some pressing questions on the subject, I'm joined by Pete Newich and Pedro Da Silva, Associate Superintendents at VSB. Thank you both for being here today. Thanks, Gianna. Happy to be here. Me too. So on January 26th, Premier David Eby announced that as part of new actions to keep kids healthy and safe from online threats, restrictions will be placed on cell phone usage in BC classrooms. The announcement came as a surprise to some, a relief to others, and left many with questions about what this means for educators, students, and families. Pete and Pedro, let's start there. What exactly does the provincial announcement on cell phone restrictions mean to school districts such as VSB? Yeah, Jenna, I would say at this point here, we don't quite know. Um, so the announcement as it came out um, was sort of the introduction to the concept or introduction to the topic. And over the next uh, weeks and months, we would look to see some additional information being released by the ministry that would help us as a district look at what this would look like moving forward. Yeah, maybe Tad. I think, you know, the topic of cell phones or the use of technology and its addictive nature is 
a really important discussion to have with education. And I think as the government works through what restrictions look like, we will implement them either in policy or through school conducts. And until we um, hear from them, uh, we will continue to educate our students and help them with their behavior around using technology in the classroom. So this is not just for Vancouver. This is for all 60 school districts in BC. Um, the word restriction was used, but it's also, I heard the synonym ban as part of this announcement. Um, what is, what's the difference here between restriction and ban and what is actually the case? Are cell phones being banned in classrooms um, or is it more of a restriction? Um, I think restriction uh, is, a, is a softer uh, way to say a ban. I think when we have students in schools, and particularly in secondary schools, almost all of them have a cell phone or the device that connects them to um, information, uh, learning opportunities. Some of that is social media. But those tools are very important for many of our students in schools. And you know, if you ask um, many of your children, and if your parents are listening to this, um, you probably struggle a little bit with how much they use their uh, cell phones. However, many times those students are using them to be curious or to engage in learning. So the topic itself is super complicated. And I know originally you asked what is the difference between a restriction and a ban. I think the word restriction allows us a bit of latitude in using some judgment on how we can guide young people to use technology more appropriately. So then what are the major problems with cell phone use in schools or in classrooms? And I guess maybe, Pete, we can start from you since um, you manage the elementary side uh, of things. Yeah. And what I'd start by saying to that question is that it's hard to sort of give a blanket statement in relation to the use of cell phones in classrooms, given that we have so many classrooms. Um, what I would say, though, is that the perception with cell phones in classrooms can be that they can be distracting uh, at times and can sort of lead to misbehavior at other times as well. And that's certainly um, those are arguments that we've heard uh, from time to time. What I would say, though, on the other side of that is that there's also a le learning opportunity to having technology such as cell phones related to the classroom and giving uh, students the opportunity to engaging content in a bit of a different way with the use of technology uh, becomes one of the challenges to looking at how we're going to potentially be restricting the use of those uh, devices in classrooms. How old are you seeing kids bring cell phones, especially at the elementary age? Um, we see we see cell phone use um, again hard to say across the board, but we see cell phone use as early as grades uh, grades three, grades four, that kind of thing. Um, not universal, certainly, but certainly you know each family makes a decision in terms of when they choose to uh, buy a device for their family or for their for their child. Um, each individual family does that at a sort of different rate that they feel comfortable with. So really, you know, it's hard to say overall, but we start seeing it used sort of in classrooms, sort of in that intermediate range, a little bit more than we would in elementary and. Certainly as students get into the 6-7 range, it would be something that would potentially be involved in the classroom in sort of a daily way uh, to augment the learning that's already happening. Where the rub is, particularly in classrooms, um, is usually around um, the use of devices when it's not for instructional purposes. And a lot of times I think this discussion is, is one that uh, is rooted in helping young people be able to um, regulate themselves and focus in on their learning. Um, you know, I, there is a strong feeling that, you know, many of our teachers do a really great job of um, providing some clear expectations about when a cell phone is used in class and when it 
uh, is not used in class. Um, and I think the conversations around restrictions will be very interesting moving forward because um, I don't know if folks are aware, but many of the students, their only technology that they have is actually their cell phone. And so I think we have to proceed in a way that we uh, guide young people to improve their behavior and focus in on the instruction. And that is uh, that is something that we have a lot of confidence in our educators, either the school administrators or the principals or support staff and the counselors to support students with. So can you give us an example of how cell phones are being used in an educational way? And then also examples of what you've seen, how cell phones are not being used appropriately. I would say the first uh, answer to your question, uh, maybe the best way to explain that is just imagine you open up your laptop and you have all of your applications and your um, and your search tools, well, they apply the same thing to your cell phones. Where it is problematic is um, when students are engaged in non-instructional activities, and particularly, I would say, um, ap applications that are social media-oriented or that have some addictive tendencies in it. And that is a struggle that I think we're all struggling with, not just students, I think adults. And I would also say this is not just an education conversation. This is actually a societal conversation. It involves some conversations at home and how we're modeling our behavior and how we're trying to really support young people to regulate uh, themselves with the use of technology. Why couldn't you just put the cell phone in a locker, say, for a secondary student and have them not use it? Wouldn't that be something that could be seen as a restriction? And is that something that we already do now? I mean, the idea of taking devices away from students always brings about a bit of risk, right? Like that. How so? So the cell phone is their personal property. And so um, there's also an expectation sometimes that exists in our society that happens around emergencies or if people need to be contacted. Um, it's, you know, these devices are a part of them and they're part of us. And I think the idea of locking them away, um, I mean, those are conversations we'll have, but it's, it's, it's pretty complicated because we really may want to just talk about addressing the behavior like taking away things from folks doesn't always really address the behavior. And um, I think as we have conversations, like I said before, with a bit a bit clarity and direction from the government, I think uh, we will try to really address the behavior. So I guess as we wait for more instructions, uh, do you have an idea on how cell phone use will be monitored uh, come when the restrictions are in place or when the policy is in place? I, I would say that one of the key things to that question would be what, in fact, the restrictions look like and how they're presented uh, to school districts. I think once we have some clarity around what the restriction could potentially look at, we would probably be looking at things like updating codes of conduct at the district and school level, uh, working at the school level to ensure that uh, folks are up to speed on the changes, and then looking at sort of how do we right-size those changes for the individual context of schools and classrooms. And I think in the elementary site, that would look a lot like uh, working with teachers, working with administrators, uh, working with community members, PACs, et cetera, to make sure they understand the changes and then understand what those would look like in the school. Uh, as we think about the secondary level, uh, Pedro, if you want to take it from there. Just so we're also very clear, monitoring exists now. Um, you know, there are the educators in the system do monitor and do regulate the expectations around instructional time. So do we need to continue to uh you know, support students in terms of improving their behavior and addressing some of the addictive natures? Absolutely. 
But I'd like to acknowledge that uh, in most of our classrooms and in most of the settings, um, our educators are doing a really good job of you know, supporting the students and monitoring their access in a way that is responsible and fair. So what does that look like monitoring in the classroom? Many teachers use many different strategies. I would say that a lot of times um, they would ask students and establish some norms of how they're going to learn together. And if they co-develop that with the students, the students at times will, will get a really good sense of ownership in that space. This announcement was um, made at the end of January by the Premier. When can we expect the changes to actually take place in schools? Yeah, the, the announcement was made, as you said, in January and had a, sort of attached a target date of the start of the next school year. So school districts will be working between now and September 2024 to look at what these changes will look like in terms of their individual school district needs and operational requirements. And then across the province, we'll see a launch to the changes starting in September of 2024. So it sounds like uh, we actually have a lot of uh, systems in place to monitor cell phone use, uh, maybe not using the word restriction, but managing cell phone use in classrooms, both at the, especially at the secondary level, but uh, sometimes at the elementary level too. Um, but we'll expect to hear more in September as the staff over here at the district level work on finalizing those policies and implementing those in schools. Thank you so much, Pete and Pedro, for being on this episode of VSB After the Bell. Thanks, Gianna. Have a nice afternoon. Thank you very much. Special thanks to music teacher Mr. Bonnell and the Nightingale Elementary students for the original theme song. Episodes are released at the end of every month. And if you have an idea for a podcast episode, let us know by emailing us at communications with an S at vsb.bc.ca. And don't forget to subscribe to VSB After the Bell on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. After the bell. Listen to me and me.